I think we can get started then. Uh, Roman, do you want to start us off with the with just introducing the event? Absolutely. Um, I think almost perhaps unfortunately appropriate that Shanana is having to join us in the middle of a power cut because of course those power cuts are caused in large part by precisely what we're here to talk about today. Um, so um, thank you for joining us regardless of the power cut. Thank you to all of you from so many places. Good evening to all those of you in South Asia. Good, evening. good morning to all of you in joining us from the Americas. Good night, good morning, assorted um, good times of the day to everybody joining us from all over the world. It is wonderful that we get to do this um, remotely. Of course, it is always a pleasure to have everybody face to face, but it's still a big pleasure for us to be able to gather all of you together online. Uh, definitely, I think, an advantage to those of us who dream of a more interconnected world and especially an interconnected South Asia that regardless of the craziness of our borders and governments and everything else, we can still do this. Um, uh, just want to very briefly also um, introduce Himal South Asian to those of you who might be joining um, a Himal South Asian event for the first time and might not be familiar with the magazine. Um, Himal was started 35 years ago um, as a, a magazine looking at the Himalayas, um, very pointedly looking at it as a, a transnational region, a region that transcended borders. Um, and um, from there, Himal grew into Himal South Asian, um, which is what it is today. Um, we spell South Asian as one word. That's our little way of saying that we think that all of us are one in a way. Um, that's not to say we are out to destroy national um, boundaries. We are trying to connect people across the crazy divides that, um, that exist across our region. And we remember that history teaches us that there is a lot more that we have in common than, um, than uncommon, really. Um, and that is why we are doing these conversations. Um, I also invite all of you to please visit himalmag.com, our website, where you'll see a lot of good journalism, again, explicitly looking at the region as a whole. I think we are per perhaps the only, um, the only uh, publication, or at least one of the few publications that is explicitly pan-regional and very determined to look at all of our problems and all of our people in that, uh, from that perspective. Um, also, please do follow us on social media channels. And also, if any of you would like to support our work, please remember that we have a membership program at himalmag.com membership. It would be wonderful to have all of you join us as South Asians. Um, before we go any further, I want to say a big, big thank you to our panelists today. Um, especially, an especially big thank you to Jayati for agreeing to moderate, but also to all of our very distinguished panelists. Uh, we have so much experience and knowledge in our Zoom room right now. Um, and it's really a pleasure to have all of these great minds in one place to share um, with us. Um, also a big thank you to Raisa and the Himal team. All of you guys have worked so hard to put this together. Thank you for doing it. I'm a relatively new addition to the Himal team. I, I joined as the editor just about a month and a half ago. So a lot of the work for this particular event is their doing. And, and so please do at least quietly give them a round of applause and thanks. Um, also a big thank you to Kanchana Ruanpura um, at the, uh, currently at the University of Gothenburg. Um, it was a conversation with her really that got the ball rolling on um, on having this event with this panel. So thank you so much, Kanjana. Um, 
So the topic today, as all of you already know, is um, debt, um, debt crises, debt restructuring, um, and we've chosen to call it relapse or rebound, um, because that's really the question before us now. Um, of course, this is, uh, you know, the reason we're having this conversation now is because it's an issue that's facing so many of us as South Asians at present. The biggest story in all of this right now, of course, is Sri Lanka in negotiations, in negotiations to restructure its debt explicitly as a path to an IMF loan and bailout. Um, and of course, um, with all of that, a deep and desperate economic crisis. Um, we see the, the crisis expressed very often in 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 debt, in sums of money owed, but I think we should all also keep in mind that there is a very, very human cost to this. Um, just assorted facts and figures from uh, from last year, at least. Um, in Sri Lanka, there was about a third of the population needing humanitarian aid, and a quarter of the population facing some degree of food insecurity, meaning just millions of people unable to put food on the table. Um, heartbreaking stories of malnutrition on the rise of children losing consciousness from hunger in school, um, a lot of kids not coming to school at all. So there's a generational cost to this as well. And in all of this, the main lifeline being held out right now is an IMF bailout, um, again, dependent on those protracted negotiations with all of Sri Lanka's creditors. Um, there is also, of course, the alternative path, which I don't think is getting enough attention, debt forgiveness and a more critical look at the kinds of structural um, patterns and, and processes that put Sri Lanka in this uh, position in the first place, which is not to absolve the Rajapaksas and other assorted Sri Lankan actors of responsibility, but definitely something to keep in mind. And I'm sure something that our panelists today will also be speaking more about, um, but also important, I think, to zoom out beyond Sri Lanka to remember that Bangladesh also um, in the process of economic reforms and an attendant um, IMF loan um, to tide them over in a, a giant balance of payments crisis. In Pakistan, a looming threat of default. Um, I think with what happened in Sri Lanka with the default, that set alarm bells ringing in the Maldives, in Nepal, because so many of our economies face similar pressures of trade imbalances, really steep trade, trade imbalances, the impact of COVID, remittances and tourism being such a large factor in, in so many of our economies. So, so much of this is shared, even though in many cases there are specifics to each country's predicament. And of course, the threat everywhere is the kind of human suffering um, as in Sri Lanka. I think that, again, important for us to remember that these are much, much more than just facts and figures. Um, so that's why this topic now, because we're headed into very painful and very new territory, I think, for South Asia. I don't think South Asia as a region has faced a collective um, debt crisis of this magnitude before. Um, and again, the IMF seems to be seen as the, um, the main source of relief across the multiple countries that are in negotiations with the IMF. Um, but of course, we know from past experience from places such as uh, very prominently Latin America, the kind of long-term pain that IMF loans and the, the structural adjustments typically um, typically attached to those loans can have. Um, of course, there are the demands for loan forgiveness, and there is an entire tradition of thinking and activism um, that backs that path out of the crisis, but that is being sidelined. So in all of this, I guess the questions are, how did we get here? What's in store? What do we do? 
um, we need to resolve this. We need to limit the human suffering as much as possible. But what can we do in terms of our understanding? What can we do as citizens of our individual countries? But what can we also do as, as South Asians? Where does solidarity come into play? What can we teach each other? What can we learn from each other? And what can we learn from the rest of the world? Because at the end of the day, with all the debt restructuring, structural reforms, bailouts, all of this has to be a path for us to rebound rather than relapse. And we have really an incredible selection of panelists to tell us how best we can get there. Um, so I'll stop there. I will hand over to Raisa so that she can introduce each of our panelists. But once again, thank you to all of you for joining and a special thank you to all of our panelists for being here today. Thanks, Roman. Um, so before I kick off, just a quick um, overview of the structure we're going to take uh, for this discussion. Uh, so for about an hour, we'll have the moderator interacting with the panelists. And um, after that, we'll have about half an hour for Q&A from the audience. So if anybody who's listening either on Zoom or on Facebook has a question that they want to ask the panelists, please uh, drop your question either in the chat box for Zoom or in the comments on Facebook, if that's where you're watching it. And um, we'll convey to the moderator for the Q&A session. Um, I'm now just going to quickly introduce all the panelists and the moderator. Um, we're very fortunate to have Jayati Ghosh, who is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a member of the UN Secretary General's high-level advisory board on effective multilateralism, who is going to be moderating the session today. Um, and our panelists include uh, Naomi Hossein, who's a research professor which is with a specialization in development politics at the Accountability Research Center. And she'll be um, talking about Bangladesh, but also we'll have a bit of a cross-border perspective because of her work on food and fuel protests. We have Ahilan Kadirgama, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Jaffna, who will be uh, talking about the Sri Lankan perspective. We also have Chamila Tushari, who is the program coordinator with the Dabindu Collective, who will be uh, talking about Sri Lanka as well, and specifically the role of the free trade zone workers. And we have um, Vishmi Varnachapa, who will be from the Asia Flow Wage Alliance, who will be helping us with translation. And from Pakistan, we have Farooq Tariq, who is a leader of the Pakistan Kisan Rabita Committee. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who's joined us today. And I'll just hand over to Jayati now to take the discussion forward. Thank you so much, uh, Raisa. And thank you, Roman, for that really excellent introduction to the issue. And I mean, I am also really excited to hear all these panelists because I know that we are going to get a very interesting perspective from the ground of what is going on in our countries. I'm going to just ask each of you for some opening comments, but you know, within this broad question, which is that this is not the first time that the, all of your countries are facing debt crisis. In fact, all of you have been to the IMF multiple times. I think I was trying to remember a period when Pakistan has not been on an IMF program. And I think for Sri Lanka, it's what, the 17th now that is being negotiated? Uh, Bangladesh also at least four times in my knowledge. So these are, these are countries that have been to the IMF many times. Why does this keep happening? What's the latest one about? Is it different from the earlier ones? 
is it more due to external causes than the internal sort of cycles that these economies seem to be going through? And what is the current state? I mean, what's what's the current state of, we know that in many countries it's still being negotiated. Uh, certainly in Sri Lanka, it is being negotiated. I think in Pakistan, the government has just announced that they will go and agree to all conditions. And anything you say, we are willing to sign on. They just announced yesterday, which seems uh, interesting. And I know many eyebrows were raised at why Bangladesh even went to the IMF this time, because you don't have such an immediate crisis. So maybe I can just begin by asking all of you, what's the current context? And I'm going to begin with Ahilan, because I know that he's due for a power cut very shortly. So while we can still see you, Ahilan, we're going to ask you to start off. And if you want to also add a little bit specifically about Sri Lanka, you and I both signed the statement. 182 economists globally signed a statement saying that you have to write off some of this debt and you can't go in for the terrible conditions that are typically associated with the IMF loan. So how do you feel about how that particular statement has been received, whether it is seen as valid, what's going on there? Also, why is Sri Lanka's negotiation for debt so complicated? Is it because of the private creditors? What's going on there? Yeah, thank you, uh, Jayati, and uh, many thanks to the uh, Himal team for organizing this event. Um, yes, I think this statement, which has gotten uh, a lot of attention, and I've also endorsed it uh, in the local newspapers here, um, you know, it's, it's created an opening because until now, over the last 12 months, in my view, Sri Lankans have been told a big lie. They've been told that, you know, once we go to the IMF, it's the magic bullet, um, all our problems would be solved. So let's just, you know, eat, you know, take the bitter medicine and move forward. Actually, we have been implementing the IMF's recommendations for the last nine months, I would say since March uh, 2022. And since then, we are seeing the consequences. Um, last year, our economy has probably contracted by 10%, you know, a tenth of our economy. And we are seeing the devastation. Um, food inflation hit almost 90% because all the uh, devaluation of the rupee from 200 uh, rupees to a dollar to 360 was transferred to the consumers. There was no thinking about how people are going to feel this. Businesses are collapsing because our interest rates went from 6% to 15.5%, the central bank's policy rate, which means even small businesses, livelihoods are in disarray. And I think that is the context for the tremendous uh, suffering. And as Roman rightly pointed out, we are going to lose a generation. In a way, the IMF agreement, though this is the 17th, it's different this time because um, they really have a stranglehold over us because we, for the first time in our history, we defaulted on our debt and they hold all the cards in terms of normalizing our international relations, particularly in, in relation to our uh, finances. So I think that's why it's different. You know, I would say that this particular crisis has been long in the making from the late 1970s, in 1977, 78, Sri Lanka was the first country in South Asia to go through uh, liberalization. 
And that came with two IMF agreements in late 1977 and 1978, what we call structural adjustment policies. In Sri Lanka, they're commonly called open economy reforms or globally, the neoliberal turn. And since then, we've been opening our economy based on IMF recommendations, trade liberalization, capital account convertibility. So capital can flow in, but also fly out. And we've seen these repeated balance, balance of payment problems where um, we would go for a, yet another IMF agreement and then borrow more from uh, donors. So this has been the cycle. So during the long civil war, um, 26 year long protracted war, the governments could not take these reforms as aggressively. It was at the end of the war in 2009 that what I call Sri Lanka went through a second wave of neoliberalism. And that was started by our 15th IMF agreement in July 2009, which gave a signal to international capital, to the capital markets that Sri Lanka is, you know, the new uh, blue-eyed kid that, you know, in terms of borrowing internationally. And a lot of the debt that we are unable to pay now started then. And that's when we really went off in terms of commercial borrowing, what are called international sovereign bonds. And so our debt stock kept increasing. These are dollar-denominated bonds, but at very high interest rates, an average of 7.5%, which means effectively our interest payment in 10 years, most of these bonds are 10-year terms, would be equal to the principal, right? So it was unsustainable. We saw this crisis coming, but we were told, no, the way to go forward is more in the same direction. In 2016, June, we went for a for our 16th IMF agreement, when the current president, Ranul Vikramasinghe, was prime minister. It was for 1.5 billion US dollars in June 2016. In July 2016, we floated 1.5 billion US dollars of international sovereign bonds. So that tells you the story of debt. We were encouraged by the IMF to go in this direction. We were encouraged by the World Bank, which had projects to expand our Sri Lankan capital markets, our stock exchange. So this has been the history, but this time we are really facing the consequences because we are caught in what I would say, it's not just Sri Lanka's crisis. This is a global crisis and we are possibly in the cusp, in my view, of a global shift. Now, which direction that's going to take is the big question. Thank you, uh, Jati. Yes, that was fascinating, Ahilan. And I think you're absolutely right that Sri Lanka is, is really the canary in the coal mine for the global debt crisis that so many other countries in Africa we've seen happening now in Ghana, in, in uh, Ethiopia, and a bunch of other countries following very similar trajectory that they went for these global borrowing in the bond market and are paying the consequences now. But I want to pick up on something you said about food prices and the 90% inflation in food. I know, Naomi, that you have been working a lot on the impact of food prices on the poor and on women in particular and, and what's going on there. I wonder whether you can actually tell us all, something about the human costs that Roman mentioned in terms of what is happening, certainly in Bangladesh, but also it, widely uh, in how is it impacting people? How is it Im impacting within households, women and girls? 
what are the kinds of protests that are happening around that and what impact is that happening uh, having i think you you wrote about in a previous uh, issue of himal south asian if i remember you wrote about the sort of moral economy of food in a way and and the legitimacy of governments in terms of being able to ensure at the this basic necessity of life do you think that's going to play a role in how the governments actually respond to the crisis and ensure access to food well thank you so much and thank you so much for inviting me and i feel a little bit that i'm here under false pretenses because i'm not a macroeconomist and i don't i i confess i don't fully understand the debt issues it's very very complex like what i do understand and i do feel that i've been working on a long time is is the way in which uh, these crises impact on as you say people's everyday life but also on the the political if you like the relationship between the state and the citizen uh, when it when it comes to the fact that many people cannot meet their most basic needs and we're not talking about uh, fancy food or big cars we're talking about not being able to afford enough rice or enough dal or whatever it is so yes i've done quite a lot of work over the since the last global crisis actually since the the food fuel and financial crisis which i seem to remember jati you yourself coined the triple f um crisis phrase for that and since then i have often on been working on these issues um we looked a lot at food and a lot of food riots and then later at energy protests which is something really that has come up a lot in the last i'd say 15 to 20 years and which we really don't know a great deal about because there hasn't been much research about today and yet we saw in the last year in 2022 um i did a piece of work for the friedrich ebert stiftung just published um, and i'll put the link in the chat if i can to the report a study of the food and energy protests of 2022 which i really it is very striking i think probably unprecedented numbers in world history of of protests certainly of those recorded we found more than 12 and a half thousand protests and these were not these were not the, the, we we were quite narrowly defined what we what we selected as a food protest or an energy protest and 12 and a half thousand around the world in 148 countries now south asia south asian countries were at the very top of the list um of the top 25 countries and this this may just be a, a an artifact of population size it's true uh but of the top 25 countries uh, pakistan india nepal sri lanka and bangladesh in that order had hundreds of protests in pakistan over 1000 1300 or something like that about food and energy prices cost of living and also shortages power cuts load shedding and this sort of thing so people really struggling people really struggling uh with the cost of uh, food but in particular the cost of energy and if you look at if you look at the the global energy price indices compared to the global food price indices they 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 rose so steeply in the wake of the ukrainian the invasion of ukraine by russia um and really the response that we found most of these protests were people complaining that they just couldn't meet a decent standard of living and it was all kinds of energy you know electricity fuel cooking oil cooking gas gas for running your fishing boat gas for running your um, your uh, irrigation system if you're a farmer all sorts of protests um and as i say pakistan india nepal sri lanka bangladesh top of the list there and you know one of the things that's so striking is that in this era where we hear a lot about political polarization actually what we found was a great deal of commonality 
And, you know, unlike in 2008 with the previous triple F crisis, where it was mostly food and predominantly located in low-income countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, these protests were found in all countries, all around, all, all kinds of regions, all levels of development, all types of political systems. So you had them in France and Germany, you had them in Bangladesh, you had them in um, all across the Middle East, of course, Lebanon had in particular a great many, and uh, and uh, Central and South America, Ecuador, many other countries, Chile had many of these protests. Uh, and some of these were very momentous, you know, governments were ousted, governments were unelected, um, and so on. What, what else was very common is the way people talk about these things. So, you know, it's it's a it's a moral issue because you cannot live a good life. You cannot live a decent life. And at the same time, what you see is that governments are cutting subsidies at the, the basic things that you seem to need. And I understand that there are very good economic and other arguments against, in particular, fossil fuel subsidies. But at the at the at the point of impact. This is really not top of your mind. This is really not the most important thing when you can no longer afford to get to work. So people feel this very strongly. They feel very strongly that governments, national governments, it's a global crisis. Many people know this, but they turn to national governments everywhere around the world, turn to national governments to say, okay, sure, partly this is Russia's fault. Partly it's global economic stuff, but we expect you to protect us during this crisis, not to make it worse by cutting subsidies. The other thing that we hear a lot of across these protests is when governments fail to respond, we often hear, we often hear that the, the, these turn from bread and butter issues, daubhat issues, as we would say here, to political grievances. So it becomes a matter of our political elites are not listening to us, not responding to us because there is collusion and because there is corruption. Now, as we know, many, many energy systems in particular are right with different kinds of uh, bad practice and corruption. So this is not this is not just popular discourse. There is some basis to this, very much so. And the final thing we find really is that when governments really don't act and they can't often because they are constrained by institutions like the IMF and their conditionalities, um, those governments tend to lose some legitimacy. It becomes legitimate for people to protest. Um, and most of them will 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 face electoral challenges if they are electorals, if they are multi-party systems, and other kinds of challenges if they are not. The costs are very high. You know, we haven't, I haven't seen a great deal of um, impact evidence so far from this current crisis, but we know from 2008, 2011, and 12, how very bad it was. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, especially now when people are not, especially I think about in Bangladesh, most people are not on the very, very brink of survival. They're living reasonably well, eating reasonably well. There's a lot you can do to cope. Coping strategies are something that the World Bank and other organizations are very keen to find out about. Coping strategies and resilience in this context just means people living much less well, living much less good lives, eating less well, cutting down, cutting back, less nutritious, maybe bulking up more. So the nutrition issue comes up very large. Ultimately, all of these costs are costs that people on low incomes pay, that women pay in particular, uh, and that children also pay because of the nutritional costs and educational costs, which you mentioned into the next generation. I can go on for hours, but I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Naomi. That was actually, and I'm so happy you brought out, I think Ahilan also did, but you also brought out very sharply the distributional effect of what's going on here. Uh, Farooq, you know, you uh, 
have you've been working with agricultural communities and you're associated with the farmers union we know that the you know as i said pakistan has just announced that it will do anything the imf wants but over the last year it has already been cutting down on energy consumption right because the imf has told it to and it has done a bunch of other measures which impact farmers in particular so how difficult is it now for agricultural communities are they organizing yes there are riots perhaps there are responses but is there a way that they are mobilizing also i mean you know one of the things that also will impact certainly sri lanka and and bangladesh but and india but certainly has already impacted pakistan is climate change and you've had massive floods so i know that pakistan has been asking for reparations for the floods damage that has been done which again has not been forthcoming just wondering how central these kinds of responses should be when pakistan does actually deal with the imf okay uh, first let me say that imf word is very unpopular in pakistan it is uh, there is no illusion that imf can take pakistan out of its present economic crisis on the contrary whosoever want to fulfill the conditionalities of imf they lose politically so that's a, a positive aspect that imf has become a sort of a damaging aspect rather than a benefiting aspect for the governments so the present government says that they were they will fulfill all the conditionalities they have not done that for last 7 to 8 weeks which they have been asked they have been saying this earlier as well but they are unable to fulfill the conditionalities because that means a political cost now there is a political crisis in pakistan out of four provinces two provinces assemblies are no more there and there is going to be elections for the two assemblies and this is imran khan who was who was in who was in power in those uh, punjab and uh, khyber pakhtunkhwa assemblies and he had uh, he's been pushing for the elections and uh, he uses this uh, this tactics now to force the government now let me say that there is no illusion on imran khan either in pakistan uh, although uh, there are youth uh, who says that he may be able to solve something but Imran Khan and present Prime Minister both have been following IMF, both paid the price, and particularly the present government when they fulfilled unconditionally the conditionalities of IMF when they came into power in April last year. They lost the the by elections, and that meant that they lost their government in Punjab. So the largest province went out of their hand. and now they are saying every time we want to save pakistan and we have paid the price but we will pay the price but we will save pakistan so that's what it has come to that extent that the government understand that fulfilling imf conditionality is very unpopular it has a lo- lot of impacted already lot of price hike in every aspect of life now what imf say at this time that you should withdraw the subsidy on oil and on gas and on electricity and raise the prices of these three products it has been raised tremendously earlier uh, last year as well and uh, 
the present government is hesitant to do that although they say we will fulfill uh, so it's, they are in a dilemma but to do if they fulfill the conditionality they lose the political support if they don't do it they don't see any other way apart from imf i mean all the political parties including imran khan and people's party and muslim league nawaz they don't see any life out of imf um, uh, aid so all they can offer pakistan uh, what imf asked them to do and that meant really a very very difficult economic uh, life in terms of price hike particularly and also the uh, actually two three things came together which has accumulated in the present economic crisis and that was not just uh, the capitalist crisis of economy which was already there but also on the top of that this uh, uh, the climate disaster which uh, uh, took place last year and i have visited the areas uh, several times we are in process of uh, providing relief till today um, and basic relief uh, even food uh, up till now is not been available to most of the those who are on the road still in this uh, very cold uh, weather which is around 1 2 3 4 at at this time in most part of punjab and sindh particularly and uh, so the 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 climate disaster has made almost 33 million people impacted and um, most of the roads over 4000 kilometers of roads were lost uh, over 17000 schools had lost their buildings and so on so it was a tremendous loss to pakistan economy so i was at the cop 27 in sharmul sheikh and we pushed hard for loss and damages and reparations so there was some uh, uh, agreement on loss and damages and recently in geneva about 10 billion dollars has been uh, promised to pakistan and as you know very well promised or promised not implement implementation most of the promise are never implemented and also we want to make it absolute clear and yesterday in 10 cities pkrc had demonstrations that tax the rich not the poor uh, so we we also raising very sharply if you receive money don't pay the foreign loans don't waste the money on paying the foreign loans and we are also demanding the imf and world bank that suspend pakistan debt there is no way they can pay back there's only 4 billion dollar left in the foreign reserves it's on the brink of uh, default people are defaulted already is the ruling class he has to default people have lost their life uh, in uh, in every terms you know i have seen the most poverty extreme poverty in sindh particularly uh, you, i can't really say in words the poverty i have seen two three four things all together they have the total uh, total property of their life maybe one suitcase maybe one or two charpais one or two uh, 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 pottery and that's all they have and this this is what pakistan ordinary people's life at present time is so i would end here by saying that it's a very difficult for the ruling class for the government to implement conditionalities but they see no other way apart from implementing it so it's a dilemma for for them and see let's see how far they can go in implementing it
this this is uh, both devastating and fascinating your account and yes i think you've given a very graphic picture of the kind of suffering and we've heard that also from naomi and ahilan but i think you've also raised a very important point about alternatives and i'm going to come back to you all about this about you know the ideas the lack of imagination that we seem to have in terms of addressing this particular crisis that just go to the IMF and the IMF also has no imagination, also tells you to do the same thing. But I, I want to go to Chamila. Chamila, I know you're sitting in darkness. Thank you so much for joining us uh, despite that. And I want to ask you about what's going on specifically with women workers in the export processing zones, because I know you've been working with them. I've had a visitor just recently from Colombo who was telling me the other day, I mean, she's from the elite, but she said, you know, things are, the situation is back to normal in Colombo. Obviously, it's not back to normal for most of the people. I mean, the elites have somehow managed to get back, you know, let's say the power shortages are not as extreme. They're occurring, but they're more phased. The absolute lack of availability of fuel has been dealt with. So there's some degree of normality. But there is obviously an ongoing human crisis. And um, what's, what's, what is going on actually with the women workers in, in the export processing zones? What is, even if it's not immediately visible, what kinds of job loss, what kinds of massive declines in real income, in livelihood are we seeing? What are the concerns of the workers? And also the fact that, you know, there's still a COVID-19 pandemic ongoing. Are, are the workers who are still being forced to go and work in these factories independent of any kinds of safety precautions, et cetera, are they concerned? Is, is anything being done to protect them? What's the overall situation specifically with women workers? Hi, thank you for everyone. Uh, I'm talking about my Sri Lankan mother language. <laughs> so, uh, ऐतिहासिकोदरिया अवस्थावाबिलती Uh, so right now this is a very difficult situation for citizens in sri lanka we are in a dire state and from our fundamental rights our right to health electricity medicine uh, everything is under crisis so as professor ahilan also uh, mentioned earlier earlier our export incomes have declined and when talking about the garment sector specifically because of the covid-19 pandemic issues that have been prevalent in the sector for decades have also caused more of the crisis to deepen right atharma nidas vinda kalapaya gattama me ratatula me thiyena arbudaya vasangathayat ekka ithamath barapatale vidhiyata ounge moolika aithivasikame sita kamkoru aithivasikam kaanta aithivasikam ullangane vecha avasthawak tata 
කොවිඩ් අර්බුදය තුල කාන්තාවෝ ආසාදිතයෙන් බවට පත්වෙමින් මේ රටට ඩොලර් ඉපයේමේ මූලික පුරුබ් බවට පත්වුණේ කාන්තාව නමුත් ඔවුන්ගේ ආසාදිතය වීම තුළ ඔවුන් සංක්‍රමණය වීම තුළ රටම ලොක්ඩවුන් කරපු අවස්ථාවක කම්කරුවන්ගෙන් අත්‍යවශ්‍ය සේවාවන් බවට පත් කරලා වැඩ ගත්තා ඒ වැඩ කිරීම තුළ 2019 සාපේක්ෂව 2020 අපනාන ආදායම වාර්තාගත ලෙස වැඩි වෙලා තියෙනවා මේවා තමයි අපිට තියෙන සාක්ෂි මහ බැංකු වාර්තාවල් පෙන්නලා දෙන. එතකොට කම්කරුවෝ නේවාසික වීටියේ ඔවුන් වැඩට ගියා ඔවුන්ට කණ්ඩ තිබුණේ ඔවුන්ට ආයතන වලින් බැලුවේනේ ඔවුන් ප්‍රදේශය තුල ලියාපදිංචි වෙලා තිබුණේ ඒ නිසා ඔවුන්ට අනිත් පුරවැසියන්ට හම්බෙච්ච බෙනිෆිට්ස් මොකක්වත්ම ලැබුණේ නැහැ බහුතරයක් ආසාදිතයෙන් පවටපත් කරා කොරන්ටයින් සිස්ටම් එක සෞඛ්‍ය ආරක්ෂිත ක්‍රමවේදයකට නෙමෙයි කරගෙන ගියේ හමුදාකරණය කරා ඒකත් ඔවුන් හමුදාකරණය කරලා හමුදාවට ඕන විදිහට තමයි ඒ කොරන්ටයින් සිස්ටම් පවා පාවිච්චි කරේ. එතකොට අවුරුදු තුනක කාලේ ඉඳන් මේ වෙනකම් ඔවුන්ට වැටුප් වැඩි වෙලා නැහැ. මේ අවුරුදු තුනටම ඔවුන්ට වැටුප් වැඩි වෙලා නැහැ. මේ අර්බුද අවස්ථාවෙන් අර්බුදය පෙන්නලා ඔවුන්ගේ උච්ච සමිති අයිතිවාසිකම් කඩා කප්පල් කරා. වැටුප් වැඩි කරේ නැහැ. ෆැක්ටරි වැහුවා. ඔවුන් පිළිබඳ සුපරීක්ෂණයක්, නියාමනයක් මේ මොහොතේ සිද්ධ වෙන්නේ නැහැ. ඉතින් ඒ නිසා මේ බාහිර ණය වලට තිරසාර විසඳුමක් සොයනවා වෙනුවට සාමාන්‍ය ජනතාවට මම මම නියෝජනය කරන්නේ මේ රටේ පහලම පන්තිය මම නියෝජනය කරන්නේ ඒ ඔවුන්ගේ සංවර්ධනයට බාධාවල් වෙන විදියට වැඩ සිද්ධ කරලා තියෙනවා. ඉතින් ඒ නිසාම මේ දේශගුණික පරිවර්තනයන් මේ වසංගතය මේ මේ මොහොත වෙද්දී මේ සුළු මධ්‍ය ව්‍යාපාරය කඩා දාලා තියෙන වක්‍ර බදු වැඩි කරලා තියෙනවා. එතකොට කොස්ට් ඔෆ් ලිවින් එක සියලු 300කින් මේ මොහොතේ වැඩි වෙලා තියෙනවා. ඉතින් මේ නිසා ඊටමත් බරපසල විදියට නිදාසන කලාප සේවිකාවෝ සේවකයෝ කම්කරුවෝ ඔවුන්ගේ මූලික දේවල් පවා දිනකට ගත යුතු ආහාර වේල් තුනින් මේ මොහොත වෙද්දි ගන්නේ එකයි. ඒ නිසාම අපිට ඩාබිඳු විදිහට අපි අවුරුදු 38ක් මේ ශේෂ්ත්‍රය තුළ වැඩ කරනවා නමුත් අපිට අලුත් ක්‍රම විදි විකල්ප හොයන්න සිද්ධ වෙලා තියෙනවා මොවුන්ගේ ජීවන තත්ත්වය ජීවත් වීමට අවශ්‍ය ප්‍රතිපාදන සම්පාදනය කිරීම සඳහා අපිට කමියුනිටි කිචන් වගේ දේවල් පවා කරන්න සිද්ධ වෙලා තියෙනවා සෝ වෙන් කන්සිඩරින් ද සිටුවේෂන් විතින් ද ෆ්‍රී ට්‍රේඩ් ෂෝන් වித ද පැන්ඩමික් uh the crisis uh, the crisis worsened the labor rights uh, of uh, workers overall and the women workers specifically within the zones so workers were uh, at risk and under lockdown women workers were in the context where the garment sector was considered as an essential sector in the country they had to continue uh, working uh, so regardless of the import income increasing uh, when considering the central bank reports uh compared to how it was in 2019 during the pandemic period the import uh, income had also increased uh, the export income had increased in the country uh, so many workers were infected during this time period they were not able to uh, access uh, proper medication methods and the quarantine procedures were militarized uh, all over the country uh, and in this situation for the past 3 years the salaries of the workers have not increased at any point their right to unionize has been violated and then no regulation on the working conditions that uh, the these women workers undergo i represent the lowest level of the country and in these crisis situations uh, they've been severely affected small and medium enterprises have been suffering the tax uh, on these citizens have increased 
uh, and also uh, this is all overall affected the situation of free trade zone workers and it has come to the point where from three meals a day it has dropped day to the point where they just have one meal a day so we have to have uh, find alternate methods to help these workers find other income streams and we had to implement things like community kitchens to support these workers in the meantime to help them get out of this crisis Samahar factory Vahaladalatina Pradhan Pele top ten uh brands that supply karana ayatana Vahaladalatina Kamkaru Satikara Davas Hatarai Vedakarani, it got uh Samahara Iva manpower seva can the memota vedi rasaval netivilatino, mulika vet pentamai, own jiva twinne, poshidayara vela deng out the kahamaratis, own to labinine, seva kapiris, covid kale tula. Uh, reduce kara, it got a dang in the Sevaka Pirisagi, Target Teka Vadikarla, Onging Vadagano, Enisama, Ong Vatrabonine, Washroom Yanda Venanisa, Nagitala, Vina, Kamak, Payabagia, Kamataha, Kamatibuna, Ong Kamata, Vinadi Pahala, the Hayakoge, Kaliatama, Vaikarani, Metarama. Uh Vadikarla Tiena Ungi Target Take Vadivi Minisatama Mahabanku Walta Penanda Pulangilatiene Apanayana Adaima Vadi Velakia to me with the Madravia Pavichikarla Tamai Ong a Target Take of Avakaraniani Enisa me Dakuni Mema Uturet uh Meva Prachalita Velatino Aitana Matamin Rukul Deno Unta Madravi Bavita Karla me target take a chukaranda in Sama Goda Kanta one me but Madravi Bavita Vimanisa Ungi Paula Prasna Velatina own counseling karanda sit the Villa Tieno, the Memoti Apikino, brands at a Vagavima Tieno, Ratchet at a Vagavima Tieno, Bioak at a Vagavima Tieno, Memote, Kamparuni, Penny Sitina, Ounter, Adumatare, Meme, Audu Tunatula, Vatu Pedimi, Novimanisa, Onge Vatu Kapa du Karpurisa, Ounter, Onge Mulika, Avama. Attevash Karna one is to Karagan, Berry Velatina, Isa, Iva, Sahana Dimanawa, Baduman Lako, Dinne, Miraje, Unanduelane, Ong, Mirate, Niamuanha, Mirate Kodunarati, Vidia, Salakuata, Memote, Onga, Atarla Dalatina, Ong in Vagavima Sidavine, I think in Sap, Kina, Brands Letter, Memenium Vagabin, Brands Letter, and Dumyani, Asia Vintama Bautrame, and Dum Mahani, Dupan, Makotasame. Asia win, Tinisa, Memoti, Om Pilamanda, Vadisalakilla, Ganaki, and Ila Sitina. So, most of these factories uh, they uh, have closed over this time period because of the impact of the crisis. And these factories produce for top brands uh, around the world. And uh, it has come to the point that workers have to work only four days, and most of the man power workers have lost their jobs and because they have had to reduce the workforce that means the remaining workers have a higher target to cover when it comes to covering their production targets uh, so the central bank has been able to show that these uh, increases in export income because of the uh, overtime these workers have put into uh, cover these targets and it has come to a point where these workers have been pushed towards the use of drugs as well to get their targets on time so this has caused uh, rifts within the families as well for these workers so brands governments the board of investment they all bear the responsibility in ensuring that these workers have uh, their rights protected in these situations of crisis 
So government has not brought about any concessions for the workers. And uh, regardless of these workers being considered the backbone of the, uh, of the Sri Lankan economy, uh, it is important that in situations like this, international uh, at the international level, brands are held accountable to ensure that you know their uh, the uh, producers for their uh, brands, uh, the suppliers for their brands, are also in uh, good working conditions. Thank you. That was again very moving and very disturbing. I think this is a really graphic account of what is going on in Sri Lanka in the moment and how it's playing out. I, I want to pick up on a couple of the questions, the points that came up in your discussions already in terms of, you know, why we are lacking an other way out. Yes, it, everywhere, uh, the message that seems to be coming across all these countries is we have no option but to go to the IMF is what the government tells us. They will do all these terrible things that impact ordinary people so very severely. And the people are, can only protest at the specific impacts, but they can't put forward an alternative program. This is actually picking up on a point that has already come up in the chat. I think Ashish Magu has said, it would be great if speakers can talk about specific policy recommendations for combating the crisis. I just want to highlight two aspects, which I think really strike you. And, and uh, Farooq Saab, you mentioned one of them about taxing the rich. This is a call that has come up more and more right now in Davos, there is that big meeting of the World Economic Forum, right? Many organizations have written letters, have come up with statements about the obscene increase in incomes of the rich and assets of the rich over the last three years and saying, we have to tax them. It's very interesting that the IMF programs never ask taxing the rich. They think of all of these ways of raising revenues from the poor raising electricity prices, raising fuel prices, which impact on all of the other prices of necessities. And we somehow accept that. We say, oh, you know, the economy was overheating and we spent too much. We didn't spend too much. The poor did not spend too much. The poor actually did not gain from the boom and yet are being made to pay for the crash. So what are the options available in your different countries? And what is the kind of, shall we say, political um, mobilization around these different options. Let me begin with Ahilan and we'll, we'll do the same order if you like, yes? Yeah, I, I think one, if you look at um, in the lead up to the crisis, right, what we did not do. I mean, we saw this crisis coming for a long time. We went ahead with liberalization so that the affluent classes could import their luxury vehicles, you know, the investment, in the beautification of Colombo. So completely wrong priorities. At a time when in, in the case of Sri Lanka, our direct taxes were somewhere around 18% of our total tax revenues. The rest of it, indirect taxes, which are completely regressive, was 82%, particularly the, the value-added tax. So we never tried to do that. Our revenues were very low comparative to other countries, right? Something like even before uh, the election of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, something on the order of 12% at best 14% of GDP. So you can't run a country like that, but there was no move to increase taxes on the wealthy to be able to uh, even you know, come close to balancing a budget. But once the crisis deepens, they say, well, now we have no choice, but austerity, so cut spending and then 
you know, cut social welfare, then the, the, the poor suffer more and more. So the, the, I, I think, so one, we also have to look at what wasn't done. So one, you know, we could have restricted our luxurious imports, you know, luxurious cars. If you look at the city of Colombo, it's, it's changed over the last 10 years. So many Mercedes-Benz and BMWs on the streets, while now people don't, can't even afford fuel or even having to ration fuel. So why didn't we restrict those imports? Why didn't we prioritize our imports is one question. Why haven't we, even after we saw the, the crisis, even today, why haven't we moved on a wealth tax, for example? Because when the economy is contracting by 10%, our, our budget came out in November and there was no wealth tax in there. They, they assumed that they can somehow get the tax revenues. And last week, um, the government comes out and says that they've instructed all the ministries to even cut their recurrent expenditure by five to 6% because there's so much on this path of uh, fiscal consolidation, which is one of the IMF conditions. So even salaries of state employees might get cut or they're trying to increase taxes to suit that. So there is there was no move to address the, the, the revenue problem. Then if we take you know, the essential goods, food, they're looking at a food crisis. If we want, you know, why were there any kind of subsidies on, on food cut? I mean, when the rupee depreciates from 200 rupees to 360 rupees, and then you transfer all that to the consumer, whether it's milk powder, whether it's wheat flour used for bread, no wonder food inflation is hitting 90%. So what we need is a public distribution system. And at least in terms of these essential food items, the, the state has to take control. And it's not just 90%. In many places, we've seen it triple for the fact that then the traders start to hold as well. And because they continue to assume the market is going to work, even when the, the economy is collapsing. So we need a public distribution system. We need subsidies in terms of food. Otherwise, I think in Sri Lanka, it's, it's a very worrying situation. We are looking at possibly a famine over the next year or two, if we don't address this very seriously. So even farmers who produce have stopped producing for the reason that they might as well hold on to their cash to be able to buy food because everything is so volatile. There's no subsidy even for the petrol or the diesel they need to plow their fields. Small fishermen, they need kerosene oil, but the price of kerosene oil has quadrupled from a year ago. So a lot of the things that uh, Naomi said about um, the energy price hikes, we are, we are seeing that very much here in, in, in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is, you know, we've uh, had this sort of great boon that 99% of our country has, you know, people have connected to the electricity grid, but now all the electricity prices have doubled. It could, it's possibly going to rise up further. And, and in a, a few years, you know, a lot of the people probably may not be connected to the electricity grid again. So this, you know, this backward movement in the name of, you know, taking our economy forward is, is really worrying. Thank you. You know, this is a powerful indictment, but what is also, I think, very powerful in what you say is that this is not a necessary tragedy. You could have avoided it till now. You can still take a different route. You can still avoid cutting down on these essential services, raising the price of essential goods, 
and you can tax the rich to generate the money you need, cut the inessential imports is basically what you're saying. Um, you know, there is another part of this, and I think it's also come up in a, in a question that why, in fact, are we insisting that the entire debt has to be repaid in full? And this was a point that was made uh, in the Sri Lankan uh, statement on debt that you mentioned and both of us have signed. But it's something that Farooq Saab has also talked about. And I think it's implicit in what Naomi and Chamila are saying. You know, these are debts taken on, not in good faith. We can talk about corruption and so on, certainly. But the point is that they were not given in good faith either. That is to say, those involved in providing the credit knew full well that there were risks associated with this, particularly the private bondholders. And they charged a much higher interest rate precisely because these were seen as more risky. Now, when you are charging a higher interest rate, you can't then say, well, I'm not going, because it's risky, then you can't say, I'm not going to accept that risk. I'm not going to agree to you know, a, a haircut or a reduction in that debt. Debt restructuring happens, debt write-offs happen all the time in capitalist systems. They're happening in the United States and UK as we speak. They're happening in India. Every in, uh, day, uh, every year in India, trillions of rupees get written off of private corporate debt. But it's never talked about because it's just kind of standard practice. When it comes to government, suddenly everybody gets very uptight and there's no way we can reduce the debt. Farooq Saab, I want to ask you, you mentioned this thing about that I don't want to call it debt forgiveness. I think it is just straightforward debt restructuring, which happens all the time, as I said, in capitalist systems. But yes, there is a different moral case also for debt reduction in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, because of your climate crisis, because of the catastrophe you have already experienced. For private debt, uh, for private debtors, there is actually a possibility of saying force majeure, events beyond my control and I, therefore I can't repay. That is not extended to sovereign debtors. Sovereign governments are not allowed that leeway that, oh my God, there was this catastrophe which was beyond our control. So force majeure, we don't have to repay the debt in full. How would you respond to that? Uh, first time, some of our political leaders are using the terminology we had been using for decades, like debt trap, uh, climate justice, uh, reparation, loss and damages. They were not saying this earlier, but now they are forced to say this because of the climate disaster which has taken place in Pakistan. And we are happy with that. But issue is that in whole South Asia, apart from Nepal, to some extent, all the political governments and the opposition are committed to new liberal agenda. They are they can't see any life out of new liberal implementation of new liberal agenda. So it's the government, it's the opposition, both. It's not just one. Uh, they're just using this. So it's a political question. And there's a right-wing wave across South Asia. There's a right-wing government committed to IMF and World Bank. They are right-wing government committed to capitalism uh, to an extent that they don't see that uh, there is um, uh, any need for any radical reforms. And they can't really think of challenging the hegemony of the financial institutions. They just want to go along. And that's the tragedy and uh, paradox we have at present time 
in South Asia. You look at India, look at Bangladesh, Pakistan, Maldives, everywhere is the same story. Maybe to some extent, little bit in um, Nepal where this uh, Communist Party um, uh, has a mass base and they are to some extent doing some, some uh, reforms. But in Pakistan at present time, there are over thousands and thousands of containers stuck at the port of Karachi because there's no money to pay to be paid to the shipping companies and shipping companies are saying we will not come to Pakistan. Uh, yesterday, a new bond has been launched in Pakistan with five and a half percent, six percent and seven percent. How are they going to pay that money back? So it's, it's, it's a very difficult options for the government to raise funds, only $4 billion in the COFR and they are, they are saying and uh, uh, assuring people Saudi Arabia will come to rescue them. UAE will come to rescue them. Even Saudi Arabia um, foreign minister yesterday said that we are taxing our people, you should also tax your people. So, I mean, apart from direct taxation, they they only want to do indirect taxation. Uh, I totally agree with Ahalan said about uh, Sri Lanka. It's the worst situation in Pakistan. Uh, in that, uh, only two two million people are directly paying taxes out of two hundred and thirty million. So now you can imagine the direct taxation in Pakistan. Uh, government announces scheme. Traders go on strike, scheme has been taken back. It's always concessions to the rich, not to the poor. For instance, uh, there was a UNDP research last year by Hafiz Pasha, who is a foreign minister, who has been uh, a finance minister earlier. Uh, he said that over 27,000 billion rupees concessions given to the rich class in one year alone during the third year of Imran Khan government. So they want to please the rich all the time and rich always deceive them. They don't, there is, I mean, Imran Khan main priority was construction, not industrialization. So all the concessions given to land mafia. So now we have land mafia everywhere, land grab everywhere. We see uh, land taken over by Barrier Town and all of the rich uh, land mafia in Pakistan. And there is a fight back uh, against that. So, I mean, the, the priorities of these right-wing government is, is not to really challenge anything which is radical. They want to go along. They want to deceive themselves that they will come out of it. They want to deceive IMF. They are maneuvering. They are all the time maneuvering. They are telling lies all the time. Uh, they, are, they know what uh, the situation is, but they say, no, no, it will, it will be okay. It will be okay. So, we hear all the time. And some of our TV anchors, I'm really surprised to see they are pushing the government to accept the IMF uh, conditionalities. So they have bought the media. So media is putting the commercial media, I mean. Uh, so commercial media is playing a part to continue the path following IMF policies. And that's uh, another tragedy we have in Pakistan. So on this contrary, we are uh, demanding abolition of foreign debt. We are asking Pakistani government say, we don't need any new debt. Just don't take the repayments which we have to pay you because that is where they, uh, they have a problem. 
and we also say reach the tax there was a super tax announced by this government and also uh, uh, alan spoke about uh, the luxurious goods which are imported in sri lanka the, this government when it came into power in april last year they banned all the luxurious items imf came to ask them open this uh, restriction don't ban the import of the luxurious goods and within two months that uh, uh, ban was uh, lifted so look at uh, the priorities imf had now we have the most luxurious lives of the politicians some of the politicians of the military generals of uh, uh, the judiciary uh, high highest judges and we the bureaucrats so all the different institution of the state they have a very luxurious life they have all the things at their um, at their will they can afford all sort of life imran khan lives in a house which is 300 canal and and shahbaz sharif and nawaz sharif lives in 1600 canal home so they live like royalties so that's their life totally different from the ordinary life and now we see all the time some of the estimation how the extreme poverty is growing in pakistan that got to change that got to change because of the policies the policies the present policies cannot really solve any of the basic uh, challenges which a working class and working people are facing in pakistan you know wow that that, that again very very powerful statement so hearing ahilan and farooq sab makes me remember this uh, relatively recent but now famous quotation from george soros you know the the big global financial that this is not just normal economic adjustment this is class war and we are winning <laughs> yeah that's true um, they are so naomi what do you have to say about this there have been questions in the chat about immediate policy recommendations and so on but i think you you've been very uh, telling about the food crisis and the fuel crisis so clearly i'm imagining that one of your recommendations would be to control those prices absolutely i mean there's a lot to be said here it's fascinating and horrible and terrifying to hear uh, from mahilan and for folks there as well um i just want to say a bit about bangladesh which is you know in many ways the, the that bangladesh has gone to imf with this precautionary package let's say we're not in it has been said many times recently we are not sri lanka and you know Five years ago, that would have meant something very different, but now that means we're not in a total crisis situation. It's so tragic. Um, but the reason for that is that Bangladesh has, ever since the seventies, really had very cautious macroeconomic policy. Stability has been very important. Fiscal uh, caution, fiscal um, what would you call it? Responsibility in the, you know, the the Bretton Woods institutions language um, has been very important. and still i think bangladesh has a relatively low debt ratio and that's even though that's risen very fast in the last few years and like in other uh, major south asian countries and cities construction is a big thing here the the city of dhaka at least is almost unrecognizable for me but you know when it comes to immediate policy recommendations there's a couple of things now one is the immediate thing that you can't do now which is when when countries have these crises and we are all i think the the reason i i say bangladesh is so important in this case is that it shows you what even when you have been very fiscally responsible relatively speaking even when you have 
obeyed all of the prescriptions of the World Bank and the IMF, apart from a few on fossil subsidies and banking regulations and so on, even then you can be plunged into massive economic crisis because that is what the global economy does to countries that are dependent on the global economy, countries like Bangladesh. And so then I think the question is, why do we need to have all of these subsidies, which are also in, in contradiction, if you like, to other kinds of justices that people are seeking, climate justice, for instance, uh, energy justice, just transitions, and so on. All of these justices are battling in a way with each other. Uh, and for me, the really big thing is that you have these subsidy programs and packages because you don't have alternative kinds of social welfare systems. And that's also important because a lot of these subsidies are not very pro-poor. They're actually quite pro-rich. They're actually quite pro-rich. Somebody said to me in Taka the other day, you know, helicopters have become so expensive recently. And I was like, oh, is that right? Helicopters have become expensive. So see, the rich are really suffering because they can't afford helicopters anymore. So this is something to keep in mind when we think about fossil fuel subsidies in particular. Nevertheless, what Ireland said, I think is very important. We must, we must find ways of decommodifying the basics of everyday life. Can we do those in ways that are not hugely damaging to, to the environment? And I say this with the, what I think of as Dhaka disease. I can barely breathe. The air pollution is so bad here right now. These are the costs of unregulated um, economic growth, if you like. But we must find ways of decommodifying the basics of life so that people can live the lives that are, are uh, that they, they, they think are good lives in their, in their own context, eat the food that they want to eat, live the way they want to live uh, without, without these crises coming. Um, the last thing I was going to say, just very quickly, on the World Bank and the IMF and so on. You know, the World Bank and the IMF, in the organization I work in, the Accountability Research Center, and one of my colleagues, Rachel Nadelman, does a lot of work on this issue. They have these rules. They've come in quite recently on citizen engagement, citizen particip participation in policy programs. Now, maybe it's a little bit of a talk shop, but it seems to me that when the IMF makes these prescriptions, like cutting fossil fuel subsidies, they don't actually go around asking many of the citizens what, what that should be about, what, what should happen. And relatedly, when therefore citizens take to the streets and governments sometimes call out the tanks or the police, as happened in many countries, over 100 protesters were killed last year, protesting exactly these issues, possibly many more, in fact, actually. I, I don't think the numbers are very good on that. But when they do that, does the IMF take any responsibility for the fact that their prescriptions have directly led to predictable protests and predictable repression by governments? I don't think they do. So I think they bear responsibility and we should hold them accountable, at least to some extent, for, for the ways these, uh, the way people feel forced to take to the streets to hold their governments accountable for an economic crisis and the ways in which governments therefore feel compelled because they are required to follow the IMF prescriptions or the market's prescriptions, um, they are compelled to, they feel compelled to repress them in these violent ways. I'll stop there. You know, so much of what you said, Naomi, resonates so strongly and it is so effective. You're absolutely right. I think um, particularly this whole issue about subsidies. Yes, fossil fuel subsidies are not good. Most of them actually go to production rather than to the, the ultimate recipient. In fact, prices of fuel in India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka are among the highest in the world. There's so much cheaper in the United States, for example. So I think we really have to do what you're saying is that ensure basic needs provision, public provision and access to universal good quality public services, 
and the minimum required for a decent life, like, like food and transport and things like that, which requires a different reorienting of everything, going for public transport rather than private and so on. We, we have a, a question from Gulzar Ahmed. I think he has his hand raised, but before that, I want to go to Chamila and ask Chamila what you would add to this discussion about what alternative policies are required right now. Please go ahead, Chamila. Oh, then Api Lankawa, dollar billion, Namut Mimote, Apita Awasha, Yekata, Bahir and Nayasam Banding, when a Tirasar, a Visanduma. Anitakatamai me, Api, India, Vin, Chining, Evagin, Ayara Gatata, Api Lankawe, Pouchelikamataming Araganathir and Aya, Badi, said Hatalyakitravage, Apartina Pouchelikamatamingatanai, Tota Kisudu, Avasta, me, Mohote, Rata, me, Artika, Samajaha, me, Desapana, Vashin, Kadavatina, me, Mohote. Rata Hoyanine, Mavalta, Istirasara, Visadu, Rame, Vancha, Dushan, Ekarapu, Aunt Waltatamai, Audu Hatatatis, Karapu, Aunt Waltatamai, Main Avatavara, Ayumifara, Naya then Dusahagani, Tokota, E Nayadima Tulama, Sidakarani, Tava Sahaya, Sahaya Dakano, Mirata in a Palakrianta, Tavat Tavat, Vancha Dushan, Karani, Tienisa, May, Silubaradarani. May Lankawe, May Rata Vidisha Vinimi Upeander, Ha, May Rate, Janagahanin, Seda Panas de Kakwagi in a Khan Tautamai, May Bara Daranda Sidulatin, May Kusi, Bara Daranda Sidulatin, Lamanga de Hapanator, Lamanga Saukit, Pravahanator, Yodavanda Tien, Biadantama, May, Naibara Darmin Karani, Oon, Tienisa, May, May Samande, Rata Vidiata, Patipati Sakas Karanoni. Eva Gematamai, Angulum Karma and the Vidheta, Meva Niamanakaran, Meva Superishanakarana, Krama Vedian Hoyanon, Eva Gematamai, Jatianter Samantatino, Jatianter Sandidan Tieno, A Yellow Convention Tieno, Meva, Memohote, Rata Venuin, Mediatin Noni, Makati Bilbanda, Soya Balanda, Kamkorwange, Rakia Surakitabavi, Rakia Sandrakshan, Krama Pilbanda, Soya Balanda, Raja, Ha. Tamisham brands may motive, Covid Kale, Unga, and cancel current Nusahagata, Namutapitano, Ekatungi, Wagavi, Makpena, Haja, Wagavi, Makpena, Yatatali Pasukan, Sapela, Aichaki, Dirigan, Nova Gamer, Kampuru Department to Memotu Sagano label legislation, current Memoti, Wagi Devalulta, Yanepa, Kampuruan, Rakagan, Noni, Memotir, Mirata. Uh, in a comma dollar, if I may come at the Angulum Carmante, Sanchara Carmante, Cadaverna, Carmante, Cadaver Latina, Sankramic Saver King, Rakia Nativilatina, Tinsa, Memote, Mirata, Ekama Galhunkar, Angulum Sese, Insa, Ungi, Rakia, Surakita Bavi, Taur Karana, Pratipatianugam Naker and Kirtama, Illa City, Nibomistut. Thank you, Chamila. Wish me? Yes. Uh, so right now, Sri Lanka is about $50 billion in debt. And uh, this is uh, uh, basically the external debt. And uh, mostly it's like loans taken from India and China. But accounting for this debt is also 40% of it is private from private lenders. So still, we are not uh, in a position to find a sustainable uh, solution for this issue. So IMF is still uh, providing loans to uh, governments who have proved to be corrupt over and over again. So this action by IMF is also like a way of saying that they 
support these corrupt governments by continuing to provide them with loans regardless of what the situation is uh, this needs to uh, so there needs to be measures in place to regulate laws implement ilo conventions and to protect workers rights to and ensure their job security because uh, we are continuing to be burdened by these increasing uh, expenses and most of the time it's the women who have to manage these household expenses that are burdened where what, what they will spend for their child's education everything they will uh, have to forego to cover just the expenses to survive so governments brands have to be held accountable because this is in a context where even during the pandemic certain high-end brands tried to cancel orders that were supposed to come to Sri Lanka so the infrastructure needs to develop to support uh, the workers in the country. Uh, so there is also the effort, the uh, decision on labor legislation, which they are trying to do. And this, we should not, this should be something that should not be encouraged. Uh, all sectors in Sri Lanka have collapsed in this instance, which will bring foreign income to the country from the tourism sector, uh, the plantation sector. So right now it's only the garment sector that is uh, exit like, uh, practically sort of bringing uh, a large amount of foreign income to the country. So it's up to the government and the policy implementers to ensure that the job security of these workers representing these sectors are protected. Thank you very much, uh, Vishmi. So, you know, we have very little time left. I do see that Gulzar Ahmed has had his hand up for a while. Gulzar Saab, can you very briefly uh, state your oh, question? Okay, okay. Uh, just, uh, I'd like to know that uh, I'm Dr. Gulzar Ahmed, I'm a professor of psychology. Mm -hmm. I'm not an economist or a financial analyst. Anyhow, I'd like to say some deliberations on uh, social psychological issues uh, for the improvement, or you can say some social interventions that we need to look into regarding our uh, the common region. I think the most of the, uh, you can say, the speakers have indicated uh, many problems and difficulties that are almost common in this region. So I would suggest that we need to uh, develop some cooperation and coordination in trade and business uh, amongst each other. This would be very much, uh, you know, helpful in, in alleviating uh, suffering because sometimes we see that some commodities are very uh, costly in one, one country while they are quite cheaper in other. So I think the mutual cooperation trade and business would be very uh, helpful. Number two, we need to, uh, you can say, reduce political irritations that are uh, prevailing in, in this region. This is very important. Uh, I think uh, we can improve each other's uh, socioeconomic status. Number three is that uh, we must support uh, during calamities at least like floods and earthquakes uh, when one country is suffering the other should support i think uh, this uh, problem is also uh, need to be addressed i think so further uh, i think that there should be negotiations and for uh, developing uh, mutual uh, trust and support in agriculture technology and social development and so that we can also do something in economic development to alleviate Human suffering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gulzar Saab. And your call for solidarity is, I think, very well taken. Uh, what is also very clear and is emerging from this discussion is that we really need solidarity among the peoples uh, yes. because uh, we are all struggling against 
a common uh, force. And I think the calls that have been made right now about accountability of the international financial institutions, in, in a sense, the culpability and the accountability is also a very strong and important comment. And I think there is a real strong case when we're talking about debt reduction for these institutions also to be involved in that debt reduction because they were systematically involved in creating some of these problems. Okay, we have very little time. I'm actually going to request each of you for a kind of one minute <laughs> last point that you want to make. And let's go the other way around now. Let's begin with Jamila and then we go to Naomi, Farooq, or to Farooq Saab, Naomi, and then Ahilan at the end. So um, Jamila, if you would like to just have a final word. Mahitani maker Lankawi me mohte me arbude lakuna matan dakunu asia with it apita ekatuela, Vadakaranda Sidavi, Hitanida, then to Pakistani, Bangladesh, Vagimatama, Yanikut, Dakunu asia, the Karata Lolta, me Prasni Balapano, Angurum Shegatama, Asia Vintamai, Meva, Locate, Vadipura Mahani, America, Europe, I think Enisa, Itama Dupatungini. Dupatungi can a poverty line in the Pirisatama, I mean, only Jeevanatate, Usas Vilane, Sangar de Nevilane, Miratawal, eating Enisa, Diva Kalina Vadapilivala, Seva King, Rekia, Trupti Bagbavi, Pilibadavana, Vadapilivala, Capita, Avasha, Itima, my studio, Antavenua, David Vijeta, me, Avasta, Aragana, Dila, Kohoma, the me Arbude, Napi, Samu Hikova, Samu Prayatniki, me Arbude, Gode, Niki, Nikka. It's a rat up at a better cut with Karana Hamavikino, Bomisuti, Matami Avastava Baladunat. Thank you. Vishmi? Uh, yes, so I think right now Sri Lanka, uh, even though we are in this situation, uh, as a whole, South Asia is overall getting affected with, the, uh, with this uh, crisis situation. So all the countries, uh, in the, uh, when you consider in the government set, uh, sector, South Asian countries produce for the Western world. So I think we all have to collectively move forward in finding a solution uh, to these problems and uh, to ensure job security and safe work conditions for our workers. So I want to thank uh, you all for giving me this opportunity to today to, today to uh, come with you all on this and uh, sort of find a way to collectively move forward and discuss on this. Thank you. Thanks so much, Vishmi, also for the translation. Uh, Farooq Saab. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think solidarity is very important among the South Asian, uh, which has uh, manifested in the past. And I would also demand uh, an immediate calling of SARC heads of state meeting, which is not taken place since 2014 afterwards. Uh, if they meet, maybe some uh, more uh, discussion can take place of uh, how they can uh, uh, help each other. And also, I, I support demands uh, and suggestions which Gulzara they just spoke about, about particularly opening of trade between India, Pakistan and other countries. Uh, and also, I think that the, the main issue at present time is really... Uh, climate challenge uh, for South Asian country. And that has become one of the greatest challenges. And uh, is, it was Pakistan, it could be India, Bangladesh in future. And that's where we have to put together all our energies to force the rich nations to pay loss and damages and reparations. 
there is no other way and also cancellation of depth and also taxing the rich and so on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Farooq Sab. Naomi. Thank you. Yes, all of these complex issues all coming together, it's very much reminiscent of, for me of 2008, 2010, 11, those, those crises. And it makes me feel like a strong sense of deja vu. Did we learn nothing? Did the, did the, the financial institutions learn nothing? Did the Bretton Woods institutions learn nothing? Um, one thing I've learned I think is really important in this discussion, and we see this a lot when we look at who, who is organizing protests um, that, that, that bring these, that, that hold governments accountable for these crises, and that is that organized labor remains, has always been historically, remains the main foundation really for uh, progressive, people-oriented policies. And uh, I think, you know, hearing Chamila talk about the garments industry in Sri Lanka, see the same in Bangladesh, this has really, for me, got to be the foundation, got to be where a lot of the energies have to be invested. Thanks so much, Naomi. Ahilan, uh, you have the last word. Yeah, just want to make two points. One on debt restructuring, which uh, you were talking about. Now, if you take, as I mentioned, if you take the case of Sri Lanka, particularly these international sovereign bonds or what the bondholders have done over the last 15 years, it, with every 10 year bond, they've doubled the amount. The principal payment and the interest payment have been equal if you do the compound interest of 7.5% dollar denominated bonds. It's high time we default and not pay them back because they've already made their money. And now they're asking for another pound of flesh. They've already taken a pound of flesh and asking for another one. But if you look at what the IMF is doing, and actually a former IMF official, Peter Doyle, says that they have set the target for Sri Lanka to have a primary surplus by 2026 in three years time of 2.3%. A whole economy is collapsing and they want us to have a primary surplus of 2.3%. Why? So that then Sri Lanka will be able to pay back the bondholders. That's what they're concerned about. This IMF agreement is pushing Sri Lanka to pay back the bondholders regardless of the cost to the people. So that's point one. The second point I want to make is about, you know, it's extremely important we have solidarity among our South Asian countries. But our South Asian elite, our government, this is not the age of the non-aligned movement even. They are much more in solidarity with finance capital than they are with the people. So every working class in every country first has to come to terms with its own bourgeoisie, with its own capitalist class, its own, which is in working towards the interests of the, the, the financiers. Until only after that, we can actually think in terms of solidarity among our countries as well, because our own states, our own regimes in power are not going to move towards solidarity because they are already in the pockets of the financiers. So we have to also think, because what we are seeing now with these all these debt crises is our governments are facilitating further extraction by these financiers. And, and I think we have to be very clear about that, even as we try to build a different order. This is the kind of crisis, like the 1930s, we might be, you know, there can be huge changes in the years ahead, but we should be very clear about changing also the hegemony of finance capital if we are going to have the kind of solidarity 
and a different economic trajectory. Thank you. Thanks, Ahilan. And that was a very profound point. I think that is absolutely true, that we need the solidarity of the peoples, which does not mean the solidarity of the elites, which is actually going against the interests of the people. And I think that point has come out very clearly with all of you. When you were talking about the, uh, the interest being greater than the principle, I was reminded, you know, all the British colonial debt commissions actually had that basic principle when they went about resolving the debt problems. They said the interest cannot exceed the principle. That was the basic nature of the restructuring done by the colonial administration. That doesn't mean, by the way, I noticed the comment in the chat about this, that we were better off under the colonial regimes. We were not. But it does mean that we shouldn't replace that kind of colonization with the colonization by global finance, exactly as you have mentioned. This has been a really fascinating, illuminating, depressing discussion. But I think there have also come out a lot of recommendations for the way forward. So thank you all for this really intriguing and engaging conversation. And with that, I would like to hand it over back to Raisa and Roman. Jayati, thank you so much once again. And thank you once more to all of our panelists for being so clear-eyed, so direct. I think really this is such important. And I mean, the, the number of perspectives, I think both the similarities and the differences that you bring together, but I think in terms of developing a, a lens on what's happening to all of us right now, we couldn't have asked for better. So thank you to all of you. Um, and especially thank you, Jaiti, for keeping us on track, on time. We really appreciate it. Raisa, any last words before we close the session? Um, just a final thank you to everyone, to everyone who joined us to listen, uh, to all our speakers and our moderator, and do uh, check out our work at himamac.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you to everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.